0: The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of his people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Like I said, good morning again to
1: everybody. Uh, Our scripture this morning that I'll be reading is from St. John chapter 1, verse 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness. That this is the son of God.
0: How's everybody doing? Excellent. Excellent. So I want to talk to you guys about a very, very, very important character in the New Testament, a very, very, very important person in the New Testament. Uh, but, but before we get to that person, I want to ask you a quick question. Anybody in here a fan of scary movies, horror movies? Um, I know I know we're kind of like Southern Baptists and things of that nature, so people might be afraid to raise their hand. But anybody, anybody in here watch scary movies of any sort? Anybody ever seen a scary movie of any sort? All right, all right. So, so if you've seen more than one scary movie... You've seen more than one scary movie then you probably are familiar with where I'm about to go. All right? Typically in scary movies, there are, you know, I mean it's it's it's, you know, we're we're in 2017 so things are changing, you know, movie movies are more diverse and the characters are more diverse. There's more range, you know, you got more ethnicities playing in these movies. But when I was growing up, right? There was there was a, a typical demographic that made up the, the see you guys know where I'm going already. There was a typical demographic that that was made up in the movie all right and so there was a lot of lighter complected fair fair complexion people in there and then there was one dark person maybe two depends on how long the movie was and how much time they needed to kill so there's there's typically one or two dark black african-american people like me that would be starring in these movies. Like I said, don't pay attention to the movies now. Things have changed. But, 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 but when I was growing up, that brother had one essential, one important, one vital role in the movie. Does anybody know what his role was? Be the first to die. Be the, first, be the absolute first person to die. That was his function. That was his role to be the first person in the movie to die. And so me and, and all of my cousins and, and relatives and friends, whenever we would sit down together and watch a scary movie and we would see a black guy, we'd like, oh, man, come on. You can't put that guy on. You know what's going to happen. And he would do all the things that we as African-Americans would be like, we would never do this. We would not do what this guy is doing, but yet he would just always end up doing it, always end up getting stabbed in the throat or something like that, and just gruesome, horrible, miserable deaths. And then, you know, they'd go on and actually you know, show the movie that they want to show, but they just needed some token guy to take the first shot, you know, to let the people know that this villain means business. Now, believe it or not, there's some theory behind that, that that people actually study things like that. And one of the things that they talked about is that as in our culture all right in the american culture obviously with all of the systemic issues that we fought against in the in the in the obviously for 300 years moving all the way up till now but well, 400 years moving all the way up till now but there was some dec- declaration or some statement that was being made in that particular element of horror it was a way of in some some cases some cases intentionally people even uh, um fairly acknowledge that, some cases maybe subliminally and unintentionally even, basically saying, yeah, this, these people aren't significant. And so they would roll the black guy out to, get, to take the first shot, to say, see, they're not significant. Because in a movie, what you think about is the person that's quickest to go is the person that's least significant in the movie, right? It's least significant in the story. You say, what in the world does this have to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, John doesn't last long in the New Testament. John's record in the New Testament happens in a blink. He's been waiting all his life for this moment. He shows up on the scene. He's been waiting. God's been preparing him. Guys out hanging out in the woods eating wild honey and locusts, wearing camel skin. He's waiting for this moment. And the moment happens. Christ comes. This is what he's been waiting for. This is what he's been preparing for. This is what he's been sharing about. Christ comes. And then Christ comes, and immediately John, almost in a blink, disappears from the scene. His work is done. His job is done. He's out. But unlike most horror movies back then in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and so forth and so on, John's role, his longevity in the story, in God's story, in God's narrative, actually does not have anything to do with his significance to God's story and God's narrative. John's significance to the narrative is huge, it's vast, it's, 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 it's essential to the narrative. Even though his lifetime or his or his time in the narrative is like a blip in the larger meta-narrative of the gospel story. I want to talk about this guy this morning. There's three things I want to ask you this morning. Who is he? Who is he really? Okay? And by the way, the questions that I'm asking are the same questions that our our, our friends ask him, the Jewish friends in this text that we're about to read about, they ask him this question: Who are you? right? The second question builds on top of the first question, which is, what is he doing? What are you doing? What's your role? What's your function here? And then there's a bonus question, right? Because they ask him two questions. We're going to ask a third of them, and that is, what does he represent or who does he represent? Who is he, what is he doing, and who does he represent? Let's talk a little bit about who he is, the first question can be restated, if you will. It doesn't have to simply be who is he, but it can it can even be stated this way: Are you who we've been waiting for? Are you who we have been waiting for? Who's asking the question? Well, We see we see in accordance to the Apostle John. That's who we're reading under the unction of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John is recording in this text that Levites and priests, in other words, gatekeepers of worship, people that officiated worship, people that led Jewish worship, they were going out. They were sent out to talk to this man. He's out in the wilderness, right? So he's in the boonies, like I I said, locusts, wild honey, camel skin, the whole nine. And they've been sent out because this man is stirring up the city. He's stirring up the counties around him. And people are, people are packing up and they're going out to him. And so they were sent by the religious elite to see what on earth was going on with this man. What was he doing? Who was he? Matthew, the another, another apostle who writes a gospel account, actually shares that not only were the priests and the Levites in attendance, but also even the Pharisees and Sadducees. You say, well, who are those people? Well, the Pharisees, these brothers were common in stature, they weren't necessarily elitists, but they were believers of the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection of the righteous, and they had expectations for the Messiah, but their expectations were centered on political power. So the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to wreck shop on Rome. He's going to put everything in place that has been made wrong in Israel, and we're going to take back our rightful place in the world. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they didn't necessarily have a big bend towards the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They they didn't believe in angels even. They didn't believe in, in, in the spirit life. But they tended to be more aloof and more distant from the masses because they had a little bit more power and a little bit more prestige. But they had no expectations for the Messiah, none. And they were comfortable, quite comfortable, actually, in their current condition because their current condition wasn't all that bad. So they weren't necessarily looking for someone to come along and, 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 and rescue them. So the Pharisees are like, what's going on out here? Let's go see and find out. And the Sadducees are like, what's going on? Let's go see and find out. And neither one of these religious groups could properly discern what God was doing in the hour. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago, they had only prepared to see a Savior in their image and in their likeness. This Savior wasn't a political one. The Savior wasn't a natural one of their own establishing. And this Savior wasn't even in their image and in their likeness. Instead, this Savior, if he was to be truly a Savior, would come to save a people and reconcile them back to him and restore them back to his original image and likeness. Do you understand that? In other words, a lot of times people are looking for Jesus and they look for him in in the way that they feel like he should come why why would he do that right what sense does that make that means he's on your level no if jesus is really savior he's going to come in a way that that you have to reach towards does that make sense He's going to go beyond your expectations. He's going to go beyond what you think is reasonable for a savior, reasonable for a Messiah. He's going to come from—he's going to come from a different direction because, in fact, he is savior. He rules over you. He—he's esteemed over you. His intellect is beyond you. His wisdom is beyond you. So why would he come like you think he ought to come? But nevertheless, they wanted to know who—who is this guy? Who is John? And so they come and they say, John. Are you the Messiah? And and John immediately, immediately kind of counsels that and he says, he says, I am not the Christ. He confesses, he acknowledges. When they say, Who are you? He anticipates what they believe him to be saying he is, and he automatically says, No, I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. I am not the savior. I am not the one who has come to make things right, to put things right in place. And so they asked him again. They said, well, okay, you're, you're, you've acknowledged that you're not the Messiah. We didn't think you were as anyway. We were going to, you know, we probably going to have some words with you if you said you was. But let's find out who you think you are. Are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. An Old Testament prophet that, that the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So, so that's strange because in the Old Testament narrative, we know that Elijah the prophet actually was just whisked off into heaven to be with God. That He was walking so near, so close to God that there was a moment in time where he literally was just whisked off into heaven. And so now in Malachi, he's prophesying that Elijah will come back and he'll come back before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he'll come back as a front runner before the Lord. So they say, maybe, maybe if you're not the Messiah, maybe you're the guy that's supposed to come before the Messiah. And John says, no, I'm not that guy either. And so they say, okay, let's go back and figure out who he is. He's not the Messiah. He's not the prophet that we, 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 we understand from Scripture will come back before the Messiah. Maybe he's the, the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, for example, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Verse 18 of that same chapter, Deuteronomy 15 and 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And so Moses, everybody knows the story. I shouldn't say everybody. So the story of Moses goes like this in Exodus. right, the book of Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, there is a gentleman who is born, and and the Pharaoh of that day says, listen, we need to wreck shop. Uh, Israel's getting a little too big. We need to to contain them because they're our slaves, but we need to contain them before they get too big, and and there becomes a, a big uproar or a big overtaking of our people. And so they start killing newborns. Moses was one of the newborns, but he slips off. His mother slips him off, and he ends up in the Pharaoh's castle or or in the Pharaoh's kingdom. He's raised up in the Pharaoh's home. He, he He gets into a high place in the Pharaoh's home, and then he's trying to help his people, the Israelites, who are still slaves, by the way. He's trying to help his people some incidents happen. There's beef between two guys and one of the guys. Uh, Moses jumps in, murders the guy to kind of stop him from uh, killing, his, uh, killing his family member. His family member kind of does some goofy stuff and snitches and all that. that you know, kind of hood stuff, to be honest, which, I mean, you guys, you guys got to go back and read the story. In Exodus It's real life. It's real talk. And so, and so what ends up happening is Moses gets banned. He gets banned. He gets expelled, or he runs, basically, into the wilderness. When he runs to the wilderness, he stays there for a little while, and God calls him from a burning bush, a bush that is burning but, the, but is not being consumed, meaning that the energy is coming from God himself and nothing else. And so God speaks to him. He says, go back let my pe- and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Your people, by the way, your friends, your family, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then the rest of the story is history. The parting of the Red Sea, all of that good stuff happens. Well, the Bible says that there is coming one like him. What do you mean like him? He's going to come, and he's going to deliver God's people once and for all. Does that make sense? And after this deliverance, there will be no need for another deliverance. That will be the final deliverance. And so the people gathered there say, hey, are you, are you that prophet? He says, I'm not that guy either. And so obviously these guys are gathered around, kind of scratching their heads and trying to figure out who on earth does this guy think he is? And John, John gives them a little help in verse 22. Let's look there. He says, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? We've asked you a few questions trying to figure out who you are. You haven't told us anything. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, this is what John is saying to them. Who I am is not as important as what I have to say. Who I am is not as important as what I have to say. John carries this posture throughout the time that he is in Scripture. He holds to this position. And we learn some lessons from John in this. Number one, John answers the question, is the message more important than the advance of your own name? He answers that question. Is the message more important than the advancement of your own name? John chapter 3, verse 25, the, the um. The the same book that we're reading right now, there's a moment where John's followers have been, you know, they've been walking with him up until this time, been going everywhere he goes, you know, hanging on every word that he speaks and every word that he shares. And there's a moment where they look over and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, he's talking about Jesus now, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In other words, they're saying, John, you're losing your swag, man. You're losing your audience. Everybody that was hanging out with us and following you and hanging on all of your words are now going over to the other guy that you baptized the other day. And John has to answer the question, is the message more important than the advancement of my own name? He responds by saying in verse 27 of chapter 3, John answered a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one, who is the, bride is, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John says, listen, this ain't my wedding. I come to celebrate the wedding. Not to take the guy's bride. Does that make sense? They said, well, John, you're losing your following. He said, it wasn't my following to begin with. Anything that we have, anything that we have has been given to us from heaven. These aren't my people, these are his people. The question for those of us who place our lives into making Jesus known, I need you to listen. Pay attention to this. The question for those of us who place our lives into making Jesus known is can we accept it when it happens? When Jesus is made known, possibly at the cost of your rep, can you accept it? If, Jesus, if, you, if you're praying, God, I want, I want your name to be made known, and he says, okay, my name will be made known, but nobody will ever know you again. That's, that's a question for vocational guys like me that spend their life preaching the gospel, right, from pulpits, who get invited to conferences and who get invited to different churches. If God says, okay, I'll make my name known, but you have to become irrelevant. Am I comfortable with that? Am I satisfied with that conclusion? Or am I saying, really, let's make your name known, and while we're at it, come on, let's give give me me a little bit of that. In some circles, the message of Jesus can be a bridge to our own greatness and not necessarily the object by which we're pursuing. It's just a bridge, right? Right? We really want to be great, and we just use his name because we figure, we figure a lot of people will like it if we preach well. So it can be a bridge to the following that, 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 that comes with preaching well. It can be a bridge to the prestige that comes with it. It can be a bridge to the money that possibly comes with it. It can be a bridge to the power that comes with it. All of that can become so intoxicating. And so John, in the midst of all of his, his fellow followers, he could have been like, yeah, that's right, man. What's going on? Why everybody going over there with him instead of hanging out with me still? This sort of reputation building most prominently manifests itself in ministry environments and in ministers that basically block or obstruct our path to Jesus in such a way that we must go through them in order to be saved. Have you seen that before? That it's only this guy who has it, right? Nobody else has it. And so we got, we got to go through that guy in order, in, order to, in order to reach Jesus. We're not comfortable with people taking a by route around us and saying, thank you for showing me him. I got this now. We're not comfortable with that. We need them to come through us. Power tripping. But there's another message that he, or another lesson that he's teaching us that all of us can pay attention to, and it's this. Is the message more important than the preservation of your name. It's one thing to be thinking about the advancement of your name. That's what a lot of vocational guys do. And some of you are in the room and saying, well, hey, I don't ever have any function and role in preaching, you know, behind pulpits. Nobody's inviting me to their church to preach. So I don't really know if that's relevant for me. But this is, is the message more important than the preservation of your name? There was another instance in Scripture where John honored Christ as well. And that was found when he had to speak truth to power. So there was this this guy. There was a a very powerful man by the name of Herod. They called him Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. Now, his father, Herod, actually shared one-fourth of his kingdom with all of his sons. And Herod the Tetrarch was one of the sons that received a fourth of his kingdom. And his part of the kingdom was in Galilee all right? And so, Herod the Tetrarch, he's not a moral man. He's not somebody that you're going to, you know, tell your kids, hey, I hope, you, I hope you be like Herod the Tetrarch. He's not the guy, all right? You're going to have to find another role model. But nevertheless, what ends up happening is in all of his immorality, one of the things that he does is he takes his own brother, his brother by the name of Philip, takes his own brother's wife and makes her his own wife. And John, John the Baptist, because he desires not only to honor Christ, but to honor the ways of Christ, he speaks to that. He says, it is not lawful for you to have this woman. Now, that doesn't get John in a good situation. That puts John in a very bad situation. John wasn't seeking to advance his reputation. John wasn't seeking to preserve his name. He spoke clearly to power. The message he spent his whole life declaring finally begins to take its toll, though, as it, begins, as, as it becomes clear that Jesus' name will continue to go, grow greater, but John's name will continue to decrease. And this is what happens. So he speaks truth to power. He gets arrested and thrown in prison for doing it. All right? He goes to prison, and no deliverance comes. So the message cost him not just the advancement of his name, the message cost him the preservation of it. Because eventually John gets killed in that prison for speaking truth to power. This is what John says in a moment of doubt. He says in Matthew chapter 11 this, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison, so he's in prison for speaking truth to power. When he heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And John answered them, go and tell tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John is looking for an answer to the question, did I waste my life making you known? That's what he's looking for. Did I risk it all for someone who can't even save me? Should I not have just kept the praise to myself? Should I not have just kept the followers? Should I not just have kept the power? Or for some of us, should I not just have kept my position? Should I not just have kept my money? Should I not just have kept my friends? Should I not have just kept my fun? Did I waste my life on someone who will not deliver me? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So this is what Jesus says. He sends word back to John. And he says, tell John that I am every bit the Savior he thought I was. Salvation, is, salvation has come, redemption has come, deliverance has come to his people as he proclaimed, no, you did not waste your life, but my friend, you're about to die for it. That's what he tells them. Blessed are they who are not offended by me is Jesus' words to John saying, no, I will not deliver you out of this situation. You will indeed die for this message. So the real question back to John is, isn't that what you wanted, though? Didn't you want to make my name known? How precious is the truth that you have been declaring in the wilderness? How precious is the one that you have been speaking of all of this time? Is he precious enough to risk not advancing our name and our fame? Is he precious enough to risk losing our name altogether? Is he precious enough for that? That's the question that John has to ask or answer in the prison cell. Well, folks, that's the question that we have to answer every single day of our life. Is this truth precious enough for us to risk it? So this goes real quick to the next two points. They say, what is he doing? All right, wait a second. You're not the prophet. You're not the, you're, you're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. Who are you? And what are you doing? So, verse 24 says, Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What are you doing here baptizing people if you're none of the people that has the authority to call people to this, to this type of repentance? John answered, he's already answered their question, right? Almost like the old Williams brother son. I know some of y'all know that one, right? I'm just a nobody. Come on now, who know it? Who know it? Trying to tell everybody? There we go, all right. About somebody who can save everybody. My white brothers and sisters looking at me like, what? Yeah, that's, that's, one of old, that's one of them old black gospel songs. It's all good. We'll share that with y'all later in Missional Community. But anyway, the ideal is this, is that John has already said, I'm a nobody in this mix, all right? But they say, okay, if you're a nobody, then what are you doing baptizing people? If you're not significant, then what are you doing? And this is a very important question because when you think about it, even more important because of who he was baptizing. He wasn't just baptizing Gentiles unto repentance into Judaism, which is the Jewish faith, but all of Jerusalem had gathered. All of Jerusalem and all of the surrounding areas in Jerusalem had gathered, and they were being baptized, meaning that not only were Gentiles being baptized, but Jewish people were being baptized. Now, If you understand Jewish history and Jewish culture, you know that baptism isn't something that Jewish people do because they're already in right standing with God through Abraham. So they say, hey, we don't need to be brought into the fold. We're already in the fold. But not only do you see Jewish people or uh, Gentile people getting baptized, but you see Jewish people actually getting baptized, meaning that John is offending everybody that's gathered. They're saying, what are you doing? And you say, well, what does all that mean? Well, it means this that everybody needed. John says this to the, to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says this in Matthew three and seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and scribes coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he says this, I don't care who your dad is. That does not put you in right standing with God. You are in just as much need of repentance as the Gentile people that you have been calling to it for ages. Does that make sense? That Jew and Gentile are all on equal footing as it relates to God, and that is under God's holy and just wrath. Why? Because Jew and Gentile are both sinners. And it doesn't matter who they're... they're patriarch is, that they're both sinners and that the patriarch is not sufficient to cleanse them of their sin. And so John is calling all of them to repentance and and preparation for the one that is to come because the one that's coming is sufficient to save them all. That maybe Abraham wasn't sufficient to save you, but the one that we're preparing you for is sufficient to save you. John baptizes in a way that, 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 that doesn't cover us. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily remove the stain of sin from us. It prepares us. But John says there's one that's coming, and that's Jesus, who's going to baptize you with the Spirit, meaning that his baptism will be sufficient, because instead of you just having a law on the outside that you're trying to obey, now he's going to baptize you with his Spirit and place his law on the inside of you. Does that make sense? Now he's going to baptize you not just with, with, with a sufficiency in terms of now I got to wait till next year when we get another lamb to kill or another bull to slay, but I'm going to baptize you by my own death so that you will never have to worry about another lamb because I will be your lamb. I will be your sacrifice. He even underscores his insufficiency in his baptism. John says, listen, my baptism isn't isn't doing the work because he says there in verse 26, John answered them, chapter one, verse 26 of John, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Servants used to carry the sandals of their masters. Not necessarily a rule, but it was things that happened in Jewish culture. Servants carried the sandals of their masters from time to time. And so listen to what John is saying. John said, I can't even unlace the one that's coming after me. I can't unlace his sandals. In other words, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. His worth is so great. His might is so precious. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. And so my baptism isn't doing anything but preparing the way for the true baptism, which comes only through him. Does that make sense? That posture, folks, let me tell you something. That posture allows John to witness without seeking his own fame. That posture allows John to witness without seeking to advance his name. That posture allows John to witness without thinking about the removal of his name or the destruction of his name. It's that posture. It's the idea that, listen, I am not worthy of the one I am representing. The one that I am representing is worthy of all of my energy, all of my time, all of my labor, all of my courage that I can muster up by his spirit to share his word. The one that I am representing is worth that. How you view the Savior will ultimately determine how much of his glory you will seek for yourself. You understand that? The way that you view him will determine how much of his glory you seek to rob. If you put him here, you know, then you won't mind stealing it every once in a while. You won't mind grabbing it every once in a while. But if you put him where he belongs, in the heavens, sovereign, able to do all that he pleases and wishes, creator of all things, sustainer and keeper of all things, redeemer, of all people who would choose to lay their lives down in faith and repentance towards him. If you put him where he belongs, then then your witness is not simply seeking to grab points as you witness and take glory from him as you witness, but your witness is put directly on the one who it belongs to. All glory and honor. I give my life. I risk my rep. I risk my name. I give it all to you last question. Who are, they, who are you talking about? Who is he talking about? Who does he represent? Who does he represent? Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Who does he represent? He represents the Lamb of God. He represents the Son of God. He represents the giver of the Holy Spirit to all men. He represents the redeemer from the curse and the letter of the law for all people. He represents the creator of all things. And and who who do you represent? When you think about it in those terms, oh, okay, John, so that's why you give it all up. That's why you're in the wilderness. That's why you're declaring his righteousness and his worth. That's why you're laying down your own name and your own reputation. That's why you don't mind sliding into the background as more and more and more people begin to follow him. That's why you don't mind. Will doubt creep in in that? Will you have times, listen, will you have times in your walk with Christ where you ask yourself, even after he's revealed himself to you, is he worth it? Absolutely. John is tested just like that. That's what his moment in jail is. In Matthew chapter 11 that we read, that's his moment in jail. That he's saying, is it worth it? Trials and tribulations have a tendency to test the metal of our faith. But by God's spirit, never remember the moment that you saw Jesus with your own spiritual eyes. Never lose sight of the moment that you saw him for yourself. Never forget the moment that you testified of that which you had seen and, and, and born witness to. Never forget the moment that you declared that he was, in fact, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. How do you wage war against this doubt that comes and comes in, in waves sometimes? How do you wage war against that? By understanding and rehearsing in your mind and in your heart who it is that you represent. Never lose sight of his word. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, when you hear the word lamb, think about Passover lamb. Passover lamb in Exodus, in the same, in the same story, of the same narrative that we talked about with Moses, one of the things that happened is when the children of Israel were being delivered, God said, listen, I'm going to come and smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. All right? But I'm going to protect my people this way. You're going to take a lamb and you're going to slay that lamb, and you're going to eat that lamb, every bit of that lamb, all right? And you're not going to throw black, black and seasoning on it and all that kind of stuff. You're going to cook that lamb just straight, all right? You're going to eat that lamb whole, and you're going to take the blood from that lamb, and you're going to post it or paint it on your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes, sweeping through Israel or sweeping through Egypt, It's going to pass by your door because of the blood of the lamb. And so when John looks at Christ, he realizes that his cousin, this is the first time he realizes it, that his cousin by blood is, in fact, the son of God. He says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the one who will protect me from death. Behold the one who will come and rescue me and redeem me from the curse of death. Understand that when times get challenging and you begin to question yourself whether it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it. Will trials meet you in this life? Absolutely. But he has rescued you from the curse of death. Eternal. And then, lastly... Have a right understanding of his work on you. In other words, John says that he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes you with the spirit. So when the trials come, depend on the spirit that he has given you. Amen. Depend on the comforter, the scriptures call him, who lifts us up in the midst of our despair, who gives us hope when it seems like everything is hopeless. Depend on him, call on him, rely on him, pray to him, seek his help, call for his help in the midst of your downtrodden state. And then have a right understanding of your reward. So I'll leave you with this. John, if you remember, we talked about this, right? John says, they ask him, hey, are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not Elijah. Not Elijah. He he is so, he is so about God that he doesn't want to make any name for himself even when the name that they lay on him is accurate. You say, well, how do you say that? Well, turn your Bibles with me, those who have it, phones if you got them. Let's look at this last scripture together, Matthew chapter 11, verse 7. Matthew 11, verse 7. It says this. As they went away, I'm sorry, let me get, steer here, pages flipping. Let me give you guys a little more time. As they went away, 11 verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's. so I'll leave you to let you know, man, that no matter, no matter what struggles you face, no matter, no, no, matter if, no matter if sharing Jesus costs you everything, no matter if sharing Jesus costs you a little bit more of advancement than maybe you would have had if you would have just kept them to yourself, I'm here to share with you this, that nobody on this world may ever remember your name, but Jesus does. Jesus knows your name. Jesus says, listen, John's role in my story according to man May have, been as, may have been as thick as a brother in a horror movie, right? But John, John is Elijah. Even if John didn't know he was Elijah, John is Elijah, the one who laid the path before me, the one who prepared the way. He was that man, and I know him, and I remember him, and I will forever remember him. The Lord will not forget your name. So you can lay it down for him. You can go after it for him because he's going to remember you. Amen? Now let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor. Would you continue by your precious Holy Spirit, Lord God, to keep us lifted even in the midst of despair and even in the midst of trial and tribulation as as our reps are being challenged, as our, as our ambitions are being called into question as we wrestle with them, Lord God, and we wrestle with whether or not we should share the message of your good work in this world, the message of Jesus Christ dying for sinners, as we wrestle with that, Lord God, let us be reminded, Lord God, that you are worth it. Let us be reminded, Lord God, that your spirit empowers us to do it, and let us be reminded, Lord God, that we have a reward in heaven in which you will know our name if no one in this world ever ever utters it again. Help us, Lord, by your grace to walk this thing out for you. It's these things we ask and we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.